Father, we do pray to you through Jesus this morning, and we give you thanks for him. He is precious to us. By faith, we long to see him one day face to face, but by faith, we see him with the eyes of our hearts. We see him on the pages of scripture, for there he is revealed, and it is through the word of God that he speaks to us, and it is through his word that he is about to speak to us when it is preached. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is infinitely precious we sing about how precious he is to us, and we sing about how we trust him, and we do, and we pray for grace to trust him more now by his word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to God's word, Genesis 15, and we consider that sometimes our own experience and God's promises don't seem to line up. Maybe it's something we're not seeing that we expect to see. Maybe it's something that we see that we don't expect to see. You may have heard of Father Abraham, the father of those who believe, Scripture says. Well, today's passage is where that reputation comes from. Today's passage includes a particular line that is quoted in full on a number of occasions in the New Testament. It is a kind of prism through which we view the rest of the story from here. It is an a crucial pivot in the story of salvation in the Bible. But it does not begin with Abraham, the father of faith. It begins with, with, we could call him Doubting Abraham. This is before he got his updated name, so I'll refer to him as Abram this morning. How will the Lord make Doubting Abram into the father of faith? Well, let's read Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar, Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each of them over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. 
you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim and the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. This is how God made doubting Abraham into father Abraham. Stars, blood, and an accounting ledger. Stars, blood, and an accounting ledger. Three simple images in context, shocking images, as I hope we'll see together this morning. Well, in this morning's passage, we have two conversations. That's how it's divided. One conversation and then another conversation. And we have two, one response, which is actually, we should say, could say two responses, And that's how we'll organize our time this morning. We'll see this morning that we can trust God because his word is true and because he is true to his word. And that is what he has shown Abram this morning, and that's what he's showing to us. We'll begin with two conversations. When you're eavesdropping, it's helpful to know some specifics on the people and what they're talking about and the situation. When you're at a restaurant and overhearing people talk, you may be able to hear them clear as day and you can tune them out because you have no idea what they're talking about. But when it's someone that you know, you almost can't help but hear them, even if you're trying not to, if you have some of the context. So I want to help us not help but hear and understand what we're hearing as we eavesdrop on these conversations meant for us. Two conversations between the Lord and Abram. Abram is hanging his head a bit, and he has reasons to do that, which we'll explore. Two conversations. The first conversation is for clarity. The second conversation is for certainty. It overlaps a bit, but by way of emphasis, the first conversation focuses on clarity and concerning the offspring that God has promised to Abram. All God's promises, his salvation for the world is channeled through this man, and he knows it. It's going to come through offspring, and there is no offspring. Abram would like some clarity. And the second promise, second conversation, excuse me, dials in on the question of the land and the certainty of God moving Abram and his people into it. So clarity and certainty, offspring and the land. These are two conversations written for Israel. This, this text here was inspired, given through Moses for the people of Israel Between Egypt and the promised land, Israel was not seeing the total fulfillment of God's promises. So Abram's Abram's questions are instructive for her, and they're also instructive for us. These two conversations were written for us as well. We are not always clear on what God has promised and need to get clear ourselves. We are not always certain in our hearts that God will do good on what he says. And on, on the page here, we watch a man get clear and his heart grip the promise and then we watch his heart grip the Lord of the promise who ensures that he will keep it. These two conversations sandwich a response. Yes, we've said two responses right in the middle, which are the line picked up across the rest of the Bible. 
It's a beautiful passage. It's a weird passage, but we'll crack it together. And as we listen, it helps to note that each conversation takes the same shape. First, the Lord comes to Abram with a claim. And then Abram responds to the Lord with a question. Something's not connecting. And then the Lord responds to Abram's question with a confirmation. Lord comes with a claim. Abram responds with a question. The Lord responds to him with a confirmation. The first conversation advances, as we've said, on a question for clarity. Let's read these first three verses again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Lord, what do your promises really mean? I've heard you make them, but what do they really mean? We can hear Abram saying, Lord, you tell me not to fear and that you're my shield, and I sure hope you're my shield, because I just got back from World War Point five or World War I, the first international war. Multiple nations ganging up on each other, sweeping my nephew away, and I was swept up into that war myself, and I made it out. Yes, by your kindness and your provision, you are from the lips of Melchizedek, the one who defended me and delivered me from my enemies. So I sure hope that you're my shield, because I expect these armies will be back on my doorstep. They are not happy with what just happen to them and they won't forget it. But while I like to think that you're my shield and will protect me, how can I know that that what that even means? For you say also that my reward will be very great and I take it to mean that that promise that a great nation will come from me will actually come about and that that is my reward and yet I'm not seeing that. The great nation you promised me isn't looking so great. So far, it's one man, and he's not even my family, but my servant. The only great nations I see are the ones swirling all about me or the ones occupying the land. I want to believe you're my shield and that my reward is great, but I am not seeing it. Lord, what do your promises really mean? Oh, we don't know if Abram is being cynical here. I don't suppose that he is being cynical. Maybe my tone and delivery even carried a bit of that. What we can say is that Abram is exasperated. He is exhausted. And he's not hearing God's claim and saying, okay, good, so I'll just hang on. He's saying, great, but can you answer a question for me? Because I'm not seeing it. What do your promises really mean? Well, how will the Lord handle doubting Abram? How will he handle him? Will he leave him? I suppose he could rebuke him. Is my word not enough? He could argue with him. Well, don't forget this, Abraham. Don't forget this. He could remind him about how he made it out of battle on a miracle. How does the Lord answer Abram's question? Well, Abram asked, what will you give me? And in verse four, the Lord answers. The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And listen for echoes of that down the rest of your Bible. 
That's what I will give you in your old age against all odds and reason, against all human intuition, against, against what you see in the mirror, your wrinkly face, in the mirror of your wife, you two are old, you're going to have a child. Abe's expectations are foggy and his horizons are low. But the skies were clear out that night. And so the Lord takes him outside. And he does more than bring a word to him, but to Abram on this occasion, look up, he says, if you can count the stars, you can count your descendants. It's as good as the sky is full. And when you look up, do what Abram did. How did Abe respond? Well, the word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord came to him and he didn't see the fulfillment of the promises yet, but God's very word that said, look up to the stars and if you can count them, that's what'll come. And what does he do? Verse six, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we read in Romans 4, 18, that in hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He believed the word of God against what he saw in the world before him. Well, here we have at least one reason, friends, that God made the beautiful stars that he hung for us in the sky to show us how great his glory is and his majesty is, yes, but also how great his plans are for his people. He put the stars in the sky not only to dazzle us with his greatness and his majesty and his wisdom. And when you look at the stars, give him praise for his glory and his majesty and his wisdom. But to dazzle us with his plans for us through a son of Abram. So when it feels like God's promises of salvation are dim, friends, go outside or drive 60 miles outside the city and look up at the stars. They are far away. And yes, the completion of God's promises are likewise far away, but they are brighter than they are far. And they're vast and they're sweeping and they're enlightening. So if you're exasperated, are your horizons stuck down here? They need not be stuck down here for God gave you a sky so you can look up. Look up and believe the word of God. Now the second conversation. Sometimes you listen in on a conversation and it's really obvious what they're talking about. Like, okay, so I'm tracking with that. Maybe faith is a little harder for you to come into today, but at least you understand what God's doing when he takes Abram outside and tells him to look at the stars. But sometimes you listen in on a conversation and have no idea what they're talking about. And it doesn't matter if they're not talking about you, but if they are talking about you, and this is talking about us, then it matters. The problem is that with everything, the problem is that with everything we read in the Bible, they're talking about us. So what is it with these animals and the fire pot and such and cutting them in half? We start with the Lord's claim and Abram's question, verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, this is Abram's question now, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so if the first conversation advanced on a question for clarity, 
this conversation advances on a question for certainty. How am I to know? And God will repeat that, to know in a few minutes. This one's after certainty. Lord, do you really mean to keep your promises? What do your promises really mean? Okay, do you really mean to keep them? We've moved from Abram's concern for offspring and now to the place every dad would consider, where am I going to put them all? Uh, To his concern for the land, where they will live and how they'll eat and everything else that comes to the land. Fair enough. How does God respond this time? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. They brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, we might not know exactly what God is getting at here. I mean, if the Lord had said this to you in answer to a question, you wouldn't know what to do. Abram apparently knew exactly what to do. God is going to commit himself to his promise through a covenant ceremony. He's going to seal his promise. It's in a different promise than what he made in Genesis 12. He's going to seal that promise through a covenant ceremony. And this ceremony involved two parties with a seal of a promise done by killing a donkey in normal situations, cutting it in two and walking between the parts of the donkey. So now it makes sense, right? Of course. Cut the animals in half, walk between them. And now I know what you mean, God. Well, why would he do that? Why would Abraham cut these in half? We're not told right here why. But as with many things, some things, not everything, but some things, it's assumed cultural background. And ancient Near East sources can help us with this when we realize that this kind of a ceremony was a common ceremony in the ancient Near East context. And sometimes the Bible itself, often the Bible itself will often give us what we need before it's done. So I'd like to read a portion of Jeremiah to you, Jeremiah 34. This is where some priests had not kept their word as they'd covenanted together to release their servants. And we read this in Jeremiah 34, 17, and I encourage you just to listen. Listen here for a hint as to what it might mean that Abram cut the pieces in half, what God might be after by having him do that. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth and the men who transgressed my covenant The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. You get that? So there was a covenant and a covenant ceremony and a calf cut in two and the parties passed between the parts. And one party failed to keep it. And what's going to happen now? They're going to get cut in half like the calf was cut in half. In other words, God is saying, if I break my side of the covenant, you can cut me in pieces like these animals. And there's a little more to it than that, which I'll reveal in a few moments. But he's saying, if this is not kept, cut me in two. Kill me. There are three twists in this particular account of a covenant ceremony 
that I want to draw your attention to, though. If you were to lay up a dozen accounts of a ceremony like this, they would all have similar features and even take some things for granted. If I go to Burger King and I say, you say, where'd you go to eat? Say, well, I had a burger. Um, And someone said to you, this would be a super weird conversation. If you're in one of these, please tell me this is weird. If someone said to you, hey, what'd Trent have to eat today? You said, well, he had a burger. Well, did he have fries and a Coke? Well, no, because he didn't say he had fries and a Coke. Uh, You might get into an argument over how stupid it is to assume that I didn't. Just because I said I had a burger. Burger is shorthand for the rest of what happens when you go to Burger King. You've got to get a fries and a Coke. My point is just simply that not every account of a covenant ceremony includes all of the elements. Some of this is assumed. And you can put it together through various texts. But then sometimes particular things are stated. And, and there has to be a reason for that. You know, if you were building a house and someone said, well, tell me a little bit about it. And you said, well, it's going to have this giant front door and vaulted ceilings. And you went on to detail some things. You probably draw attention to the things they wouldn't assume. And uh, to lay this illustration next to the last one in a similar fashion, if someone said, well, are they going to have any bathrooms in the house? Well, he didn't mention those. (laughs) Well, no, of course, those are assumed. But the special things about the house... Are the, things that got, are the things that got mentioned. Well, that's, that's what's going on here too. There are some special things mentioned. We can tell what's unique by what is highlighted in this account. In other similar accounts of covenant making, certain details are left out because they're so obvious. But there's a reason why when a covenant is inaugurated, it's called to cut a covenant, which we'll get to. Abram knows what God is going to do to him. Three twists. And these twists in the story reveal the emphasis of this particular account. These twists add tension and suspense to the story of Genesis and to the whole Old Testament that isn't resolved until Jesus comes. Because what God promises here, he will need to keep. The first twist found in verses 7 through 11. Some unique features. Why these animals? These are not the normal animals for a covenant-making ceremony like this. Like I said, a donkey or a calf. Why these specific, as Israel would hear them, sacrificial animals? Why each of the animals associated with Israel's worship? And why are they each three years old, three years old, three years old? Why does it matter? It seems it would be harder to find ones that are three years old, three years old, three years old than just animals has to be deliberate. And what is this about Abram driving away the birds? Um, Bible includes details for us, which are a part of the dramatic presentation at times. Um, in, in the Gospels, you'll get an exact count of fish. Don't try to overread and read into, I think it's 153 fish uh, that they caught on one occasion. Don't try to overread into that. That just tells us it's an actual historical account. Someone must have remembered. But this seems like a needless bit of drama. In this story to my ears. Why is he driving the birds away? Friends, it is not a stretch to see in these details an association being made in the mind of the first Israelite hearers. That the animals are associated with Israel's worship means that the animals in this particular account of covenant making with Abram, the father of his people, represents the people. 
Animals associated with Israel's worship representing Israel. Why the three-year age? Well, there are other sacrifices account- accounted for in Scripture where the year of the animal is associated with something going on in Israel's life. Gideon sacrificed a seven-year-old bull to represent seven years of Midianite oppression. And the birds of prey attacking the animals? It's not a stretch to see that that is representing the oppression of the people of God in Egypt. As they received this book, they would have heard themselves on the page. The Lord will actually speak of deliverance of his people from Egypt as keeping his oath to Abram, which may have this as background this very moment. The first twist comes to us from the specific animal selected. And I'd suggest to you that this may be an explanation. If it's not this, though, then we really do need an explanation of some kind for why all of these um, unique details are outlined in this account of an otherwise pretty traditional covenant-making ceremony. That's the first twist. Second twist found in verses 12 through 16. The sun was going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord is giving Abram a bad dream. Abe wanted certainty he would inherit the land. The Lord puts him to sleep and gives him a nightmare. Here's some certainty. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, there it is, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Was this some kind of punishment for asking the question? Well, not at all. What? You might have found the wrong guy. Wrong number, Lord. I'm the guy that's moving into the land. That's someone going into some other place. I don't want to be that guy. Come back when you're ready to talk to me. It seems either mistaken or cruel, but friends, it is neither. Of course, we need only to keep on listening. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land not theirs. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace, but your children will come back here after four generations. A dreadful great darkness fell on Abram, friends, as a preview of the dreadful great darkness that would fulfill his, the life of his people for years. And Israel, reading this, would recognize their own experience on the page. In other words, God knows their suffering. God hears their cry. God knows their difficulty fully. It is even in his providence a part of the plan. Hear that for you, friend. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. If now for a little while, you, while you're grieved by various trials, you rejoice. They left Egypt with great possessions. The Egyptians were so glad to see him go because of all the plagues. Just take our stuff. Go, 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 get out. And so they leave with possessions and with with gold. Now, why wouldn't God just give Abram the land now? Uh, Why wouldn't he just get this done? When we read this, we may think of God and Abram as aggressors in this relationship with Canaan. Here we've got God coming to Abram, making a promise. I will give you this land. Ooh, there's people in the land. Uh, It's occupied. It's home. Uh, What are we to make of that? Is the Lord an 
as Abraham, an aggressor in this case, we should say that the Lord can do what he wills. He creates and he takes life and he can deploy his people for his purposes, but he is not so arbitrary. It would not be quite right to say, quite right at all to say he's an aggressor in this case. Why does God wait 400 years to move them in? Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, we will wait until Abram moves into the land and it will not be an invasion, but God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land. Well, what does it look like when the Amorites' iniquity is complete? Because that's what's supposed to happen. There's 400 years for their sin to ripen them for God's just judgment. God waits, and what will that look like? Well, Leviticus 18, we're given a list of 12 variations of incest along with adultery, child sacrifice, various other sexual perversions, including bestiality. This is humanity rot, rot all the way down. You remember violence filled the land before the Lord swept the earth with the waters at Noah's flood. Well, he's not gonna do that again, but he will judge a people And make some room for his promise to flower. And that's what's happening. But not until that people is ripe for judgment. In Leviticus 18, that whole section on the catalog of the sins surrounding the people into which they could be tempted to participate, we read, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all the nation, by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. Is it harsh? Yes. Is it just? Yes. Is that the point? No. What's the point? The patience of God is the point. 400 years, long time. So let us not pit the Old Testament God against the New Testament God. The New Testament God will judge completely and it will be fantastically more horrifying than anything on the pages of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament God judges, in this case, friends, after extreme patience even sending his people into hardship for 400 years until the people have fully shown their sin, he will let his people suffer before he delivers them into their land through judgment. So this is the second twist. And the point of the twist is not to defend God against, even by highlighting his patience, although I'm drawing that out for our purposes now, because this text tends to raise questions in our our minds as we're thoughtful Readers, but that is not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to strengthen Israel with the description of God's timetable. He's got it. He's on it. It's going to take a long time, but he'll come through. He knows what he's doing. Abe, I'll give you the land, but it will be a while, and it will get worse before it gets better. There will be suffering before there's glory, and that'll be the story of the people of God until Jesus comes. It will be dreadful and dark before it is bright and it is day, but one day it will be bright and it will be day. Take comfort in that. Now, a third twist, a third twist, which we see in verses 17 through 21. If the first twist was uh, a bit speculative, maybe that's too speculative a word for what uh, we saw in the first twist, but at least a matter of suggestion, then everyone should agree with this one here that only one party walks through the pieces. Remember what Abram is doing when this happens. 
he is sleeping. Verse 17, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through the pieces. What's up with the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch? Well, this is another instance where a wider reading of Scripture will help us to see that the first hearers would have immediately understood what this this is. Familiar imagery to them. Moses met the Lord in a bush that glowed with fire. Smoke and fire engulfed Sinai as Moses received the law. By a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, the Lord led his people through the wilderness. Here is a smoking fire pot walking between the pieces. Here is the Lord walking between the pieces of the sacrificial animals. A smoking fire pot and a fire. It's the Lord. The Lord is covenanting with Abram. A covenant, a relationship between two parties founded on promises and sealed. And this is the seal. How does that work when Abram is sleeping? How does Abram do his part and walk between? Is this like asking someone to sign papers while they're on medication? (laughs) Sign right here. Um, He's sleeping. He wakes up and finds out that he's in this kind of contractual agreement. It's not contractual exactly. It's covenantal, but that he's tied in. Of course, he'd want to be tied in. It's the Lord. But was this in some way uh, pulling things over Abram? No, the Lord is deliberate in what he is doing. Here we have the Lord committing to take the curse on himself if either side is not met. Parentheses. There's discussion about whether this covenant is unilateral. God makes it one way and he'll keep it no matter what or whether it's conditional. A covenant is made, but it's only kept on one side if the other side keeps it. I'd simply suggest to you, and you'll hear this over time uh, in the working through the scriptures, that it is both that it is unilateral and that God has made a promise and he will keep the promise. But it is conditional in that the obedience of the people, the obedience of Israel, namely one Israelite to come, is the condition on which God's unilateral promise is kept. He will keep it. The question is, how is he going to do that when the other party is always in sin? He will absolutely unilaterally keep the promise, but he will have to keep both sides himself. And how God will do that remains to be seen. Of course, we know how the story ends. The first readers know smoke and fire when they see it. And here is the Lord walking between the pieces as Father Abram is sleeping. How will Abram do his part? The Lord will do his part. The twist of this detail is so that the Lord can say, Abram and friends, heritage. Salvation is of the Lord. It depends on him from start to finish. Here, we have the Lord committing to take the curse on himself. Hold that idea for now as we'll turn back to it. For the moment, let's just consider how incredible is our God. This is how much God wants Abram and you and I, for this is written for us, to be certain that he will keep all of his promises. He says, turn out the lights, go to sleep. Before you do that, cut these animals in half. And he walks through them. He wants us dead certain. He is saying, over my dead body. He is saying, my life to keep it. And he will keep it. 
He puts his life on the line. He comes down to a nomad's tent, the God of heaven who made the stars and put them in the sky that he just pointed to, comes down to a nomad's tent, takes him outside, says, look at the stars. I made these for you. I'll keep my promise. And that's how big it is. And then he puts him to sleep and he walks, as it's been said, splashing barefoot through the blood to make his point. I promise you, Abram, I promise you, Heritage, I will do exactly as I have promised. And so if your promises seem dim for you right now, and if heaven seems far away, look at the stars. And as you go to sleep tonight, remember what God did when he put Abram to sleep and he splashed through the blood and he made his promise. God, the covenant keeping God. He makes his promises and he keeps them full stop. You can take that to the bank and you can take that to the grave. Two conversations. One was easy to understand. One not so easy. But with some work, I think we're seeing it. Some twists help us to see the emphasis that's being made. Both of them are for us. But how do they relate to us? Or better, how should we relate to these promises? We come right up to our answer in the response or the responses that are sandwiched between these two conversations. And it was highlighted in verse 6. Now, two responses. Look with me to verse 6. We see Abram's response to God's promise. He's taken Abram outside. He's shown him the stars. And what does Abram do? Only one thing. And he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. Abram believed the bare word of the Lord. He didn't see as of yet what God was saying in front of him, but he believed the Lord. His circumstances didn't match the promises of God, but he believed the Lord. He could hear God's word and he could see the stars and that was enough. And so, friends, it must be enough for us. And it is. We see Abram's response to God's promise, and we see God's response to Abram's faith. Verse 6 again, and he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. Our righteous God, who is in the heavens and is himself without sin, and is perfect in beauty and perfection of every kind, is utterly righteous. And he demands and requires, as he should, righteousness on the part of those who will be his. Abram has just received a full credit of righteousness, and it is not his own. It is his, though, by faith. And so Romans 4.23 The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. And so as we read this story on the pages of Genesis, as we're reading the book of Genesis, we are reading the story of our own origins. We're reading the backstory on how the thing called the cross and the resurrection makes any sense and how that comes over to us. It comes over to us by faith. The benefits of Christ, the blessings that were won on the cross come to us by faith. And right here, the point is made in simple terms. As Abram believes the Lord, his bare word, not seeing what was yet promised, and the Lord counts that faith to him 
as righteousness. And so let us ponder this for ourselves. Friends, if righteousness is by faith, then you and I have nothing in ourselves to boast about. If the righteousness that we arrive before the Lord with on the day uh, that we die, that means that we're acceptable to him, the righteous God accepts us on account of righteousness, if that righteousness is nothing that we've earned, if it's not intrinsic to us, but it was granted to us, imputed to us, counted to us, then there is nothing for us to boast about in the presence of God. It is all to his praise and to his glory. And so Paul can say in Romans 4, what can we say is gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Christian, if you're safe in Christ, and if at the day of your death, you expect to meet him fully confident that he'll accept you, that's not because of you. And it's not because of me. And so the cross where the Lord Jesus suffered in our place, the righteous one for the unrighteous, is a humiliating thing for sinners like you and me. It means that before God, we don't have anything to boast about. And so we go about our life boasting only in the Lord. Abram had nothing to boast about. He boasted in the Lord, and so do we. If righteousness is by faith, we've nothing to boast about. If righteousness is by faith, then righteousness is not by works. In other words, it's by faith alone, as the reformers have said, properly. Uh, Paul will continue in Romans 4. Now, the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift and his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, a little illustration. You, uh, you get a paycheck. You get a paycheck. That's what you're owed. Well, that's not how salvation works. That's not how we arrive in heaven. That's not how we may be in God's presence forever. That's not how we'll find ourselves in the new creation. It doesn't work like a, like a paycheck. It works like a gift. Oh, it was bought, but it works like a gift. It is given. By faith, that gift is received. Oh, but what about the really bad people? And I hope you're saying, oh, really, what about me? But what about the really bad people? Well, Paul continues. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will, uh, will not count his sin. Now, there's a man who broke three of the Ten Commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He took her and committed adultery. And he murdered her husband so that no one would know. Oh, what a mess. Um, that's called disobedience. That's called a pretty bad sinner. All of that is in our hearts, although it may not work itself all the way out. And Paul, in his argument that God justifies the ungodly, that he can count as righteous those who are sinners and have none, he picks up David as an illustration. David himself, who pleaded for God's mercy on account of God's mercy, that his sins would be forgiven. And he says, blessed are the ones, as one who knows it, whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Isn't it good news to know that the Bible's story leads us to Jesus Christ 
through whom by faith the Lord will not count our sin against us? You have a problem with guilt? You have a problem with sin? Maybe you've hardened your heart so that you don't feel it. But let's just say the books were opened. Let's just say your ledger was laid bare. Let's just say your ledger was opened for your family to see, your friends to see, the world to see. Oh, you would feel like a sinner on that day. Your thoughts, your deeds, whether they have led to adultery and to murder or not, your adulterous thoughts, your murderous thoughts, and everything else. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And how can the Lord do that? Well, if righteousness is by faith, well, it's not by works. Psalm 32 tells us that it's not by works, which means that faith is not a work. God is not doing this for us because our faith represents our goodness as some type of evidence that we're worthy of God and his righteousness, like we're meeting him half the way there with our faith. Is faith a work? can feel like it. Some of us can believe and even treat our faith like it's a work. It is not a work. Faith is admitting that you can't work. Abram is admitting that he can't bring life from Sarah's womb. He won't have a child unless God works. He can't get into the land. It's full of people and they want to be there. He's admitting that he can't get there unless God does it. Faith is giving up on your self-salvation project. It is saying, all right, I got nothing. That's faith. Maybe not quite. It's you've got everything. I've got nothing. You've got everything. That's what Abram is saying. Friends, that's the faith that I commend to you this morning. Not a faith that is a functional work. If righteousness is by faith, then there is only one way of salvation. Yes, even the New Testament will argue that this moment, God put it there on purpose. This little moment where Abram believes and it's counted as righteousness comes before the law at Sinai. It comes before the command to circumcise his children that will come in two chapters later. It is all here on its own on the bare word of God so that we will know that from beginning to end in the Bible story, salvation is by faith alone. Before Christ comes, it is by faith alone and not by works or salvation or obedience to the law. It is not. It is by faith alone from beginning to end. Before Christ comes, we have less information and it is in what we have. It is in the bare promise of God, of a son of Eve to come to solve the problem of our sin. Abram believes it. And after Christ comes, it is only in Christ crucified and buried and raised from the dead. How beautiful is the story of the Bible. Unified, even as it is dynamic and complex. If righteousness is by faith, there's nothing to boast about. It's certainly not by works. There's one way of salvation and we have every reason to obey. But someone will say, James says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And so as we watch Abram's obedience unfold, we know how to interpret that. And we know how to interpret his standing before God. It is not his raw obedience, but it's his obedience from faith, 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 faith. And if righteousness is by faith, then we might say at this point in the story, we have a problem 
or that God has a problem. And I've raised it a bit because we have to answer the question, what happens with sin? And where does the righteousness come from? If we're looking at this, we have to ask, is this kind of like monopoly money? It's like pretend. I'll pretend you're righteous and uh, I'll pretend you hadn't sinned. How is this credit of righteousness not funny money, in other words? No, if righteousness is by faith, then God provides what God requires. And of course, as we preach the scriptures here on this side of the resurrection, we preach them in light of Christ. We have the full story and we don't pretend like we don't. The apostles didn't. 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so friends, in that covenant ceremony God made with Abram and his offspring, God pronounced a death sentence on his own son to see the promise through. So that if righteousness is by faith, friends, we have an awesome God who has made it so that we could be righteous before him. He has written his promises in the sky. Don't miss it. But he has also sealed his very vast and great and seemingly impossible promises with his own blood. The blood of his own dear son. So that by faith you and I might become the righteousness of God. I hope that like Abram this morning, even though you don't see him, you love him. That even though you don't see what is promised, you believe in your heart. It is true. And entrust yourself to a faithful Savior by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, having sat under this word, in this ancient book, in this cryptic, even creepy and weird chapter. We give you thanks that salvation is by grace alone and by faith alone. And as we know in the fullness of time, by and through Christ alone, and not so that we might boast, no, none of our works, but to your glory alone, for you are the one who brings salvation and provides all that salvation will require through your own dear son. Father, we thank you for gathering not merely Christians together this morning, but a people, and that the blood of your son has bought his church. We are blessed to be here. Some of us may have been up against the edge of life at the back end or at the front end in the last two weeks. Even five brothers and sisters in our church in the last two or three weeks have seen parents to the ground. Father, we give you thanks that there is hope for us against hope in Jesus Christ, that there is an answer to the grave, that human beings are as precious as Scripture says, and that there is an answer as long as eternity. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.